We'll hear argument now, number 0024, PGA Tour, Inc. versus Casey Martin. Mr. Farr. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Ninth Circuit, in our view, made two critical mistakes in applying the Disabilities Act to this type of claim by a professional athlete. First, it failed to recognize that Title III of the Act, the public accommodations provision, apply only to claims by persons seeking to obtain inputs of a place of public accommodation, that is, seeking to enjoy its goods or services, not to claims by persons seeking to supply inputs as employees or independent contractors. Second, the Ninth Circuit never took account of just what a top-level professional sport really is, nothing more or less than a competition that tests excellence in performing what its rules require. Any attempt to adjust the rules to compensate for an individual player's physical condition fundamentally alters the nature of that competition. Now, in turning to the first issue, our position is simply this. The Title III of the Act would not apply if respondent were playing in tour events as an employee of the tour, and the results should be no different just because he's playing in the events. Mr. Farr, the language of uh, Part Three of the Act um, literally could cover the player. Uh, It says it refers to any individual, and it refers to um, any kind of uh, advantage or privilege on a golf course. So you have to construe it some way, it seems to me, to avoid that language. That's correct, Justice O'Connor. I mean, the the argument — To reach your conclusion. That's correct. The the argument made by respondent is essentially that Title III covers any person who's present at a place of public accommodation, whatever he or she is doing there, whether they're a customer, an employer, or an independent contractor. I think that's — wrong for several reasons. First of all, just looking at the specific language that you point to, the notion of full and equal enjoyment of goods and services, it seems to me, is quite different from the notion of being allowed to provide the goods and services. Well, Mr. Farr, you keep talking about goods and services, but the statute is not limited to goods and services, as Justice O'Connor's question indicated. It covers the enjoyment of, among other things, privileges. And, and I, I, it seems to me the straightforward argument is that the person who is making a claim here is somebody who says, like any other member of the public, I paid my $3,000 and I got my two references, and I want to enjoy the privilege of competing uh, at, at, this, uh, uh, at this place of public accommodation. Why doesn't it literally fall within that quite easily? Well, if I may separate this into two things, because the $3,000 applies only to a very small piece, which is the qualifying tournament. There is no requirement playing on the tour itself, right, on the but Nike tour. That's, that's where you start. But that's, that's where, where one start. starts. But in terms of privilege, I use, I'm using the term goods and services not to skip over the others, but simply as a shorthand reference to all of that. Well, except that it makes a difference, because I think it, in, in a common-sense kind of way, we can say, well, he's not getting any goods and services. 
but he is trying to exercise a privilege of playing. Well, except for it seems to me that, that in fact the word privilege, if it, if it means the privilege to work for a place of public accommodation, to, pro- to provide the input of labor to a place of public accommodation, then naturally following that logic, Title III would apply to anybody, an employee, oh, independent okay. contractor, or anyone. But once again, when you, when you phrase it the way you do, it makes it easier for your case. You say — uh, a person supplying labor at a place of public accommodation. Another way of looking at it, and I, I frankly would have thought in, in this circumstance an easier way of looking at it would be not that he's supplying labor, but that he wants to play a game, and if he plays the game well enough, to win a prize. That's, that doesn't fall within the sort of aura of employment that Title I covers. Well, I think it does, <clears throat> to be honest with you, Justice Souter. For example, this happens to be a game of golf, but if, if one thinks of the game of football, for example, professional football is a game that is played by employees. <clears throat> they, are, they are hired, I think, basically by the teams. They compete against each other. Yeah, they and, they get, and each one of them gets paid by his employer, win, lose, or draw. In this case, uh, maybe, maybe you'll have to help me out here. I thought... Uh, whether one got paid depended on whether one won the prize. Well, it depends on performance, but in, in a very specific sense, of course, the performance by any professional athlete determines ultimately what he or she gets paid. So if, in fact, one can say it is a privilege of a place of public accommodation to be able to compete in a professional sport, then it seems to me that would apply to any professional yeah, except sport. Except that the statement is too broad. The, the, the football industry, I suppose, does not say we will give anybody who wants to come in and compete for a place in our team uh, a, a spot. They're not going to invite me uh, to, to try out. Uh, but as I understand it, that, that is what is at stake here. Anybody who can start at the first qualifying level with his money and his references and keep on playing well enough is in a position the way the PGA is run to get to this top echelon of athletes uh, and compete for a prize. I'm not sure what difference that makes, uh, Justice Souter, because, in a sense, anybody can compete to play on a professional football team. I mean, professional football teams are drawn from the public at large. Well, Mr. Farris, good enough to to me we, we don't have to decide the football case here, but uh, I'm wondering if you take too narrow a view of what the PGA's business it is. You, you think of it as just two-dimensional. Uh, the PGA wants spectators, both public and on the television, and that's the service it But the other thing, as, as, as Justice Souter's privilege question indicates, it also offers to a subset of the public, a very talented subset, from all over the world, the opportunity to win a prize. And that's also part of its business. It is offering an opportunity to win a prize. Well, the, the, the thing that I think it makes it more confusing, it seems, is that normally I, 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 our position would be that the opportunity to earn something to start with, without using the words win a prize for a moment, the opportunity to earn something would not be the kind of privilege or good or service that is being offered by a place of public accommodation. Indeed, people who want to provide the inputs would be the kinds of people who wanted to provide services and earn what they would get in return. I think what makes this case seem different is because what 
respondent, in fact, does for a living is something that other people do for recreational purposes or part of educational purposes. But, but again, to, to, to take an example, if the tour constructed its operation just slightly differently, instead of saying we will have everybody just compete for the prizes as independent contractors, if they said what we will do is we will hire a group of approximately 200 professional golfers, we will make them employees, We'll pay them a modest salary, just enough to kind of cover their expenses as they play. And then whatever they win over and above that, that will be their earnings. Now, our argument would be that in that arrangement, the tour would clearly not be subject to suits by those golfers under Title III. They might be, would be subject, subject to suit, suit under, under Title I. Because Title I is the title of this act that deals with that kind of issue, the question of relationships between people who are providing labor and the people who are paying for it. Well, all that, I mean, this is, that's true. But it's, is a very, it's an unusual situation here. And we could go on forever about the pros and cons and who they're really like. But people go to race courses for entertainment, but a few go to earn a living. They're touts. Some people go to casinos for fun, and an occasional person goes there uh, to earn a living. So, given the purpose of the statute and the language of the statute, why does that make any difference? I think it makes You're not going to say a person who goes to a race course happens to make a living out of it, therefore he couldn't sue if it's otherwise a public accommodation. And I think you'd say the same about all the unusual cases we can think of. Why should this make a difference? I think the difference between the examples you're, you're using, Justice Breyer, and this example is those, the, the people who go to the racetracks, some of whom may go to make a living, are essentially doing the same thing, receiving the same outputs, if you will, from the racetrack as the people who are there simply for recreational purposes. So are these people, because after all, the golf course is leased by the PGA to use to play golf for that day. But, but I think the difference, Justice Breyer, is that at the time the tournament is going on, in fact, there are no people there playing for recreational purposes. During the time of the tournament, which is the time when the PGA is operating the place of public accommodation, that's what's bringing the PGA with, within Title III with respect to the spectators, for example, is because it's operating a particular tournament at a place of public accommodation. Mr. Farr, I understand you're behind the ropes. You say those are the spectators. It's a public accommodation with respect to them. That's correct. But I'm, I'm sure that you must have an answer to the uh, public accommodations provision is not new with the American Disabilities. It comes up in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 where the concern is race. Now, with respect to race, could the PGA say that we don't want any African-Americans to play in our game. Well, Title II does not apply, we believe, in the same circumstances as we don't think Title III of the ADA applies, to um, situations in which somebody is simply seeking to provide employment, you know, seeking to obtain employment or trying to obtain work as an independent contractor. So Title II of the Civil Rights Act would not apply in that case either. So your answer is the same for both, that, that neither same. public accommodation — For both those situations. Now, of course, the, 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 the Disabilities Act itself 
and, of course, the civil rights acts that apply to race and sex and age, have provisions that deal specifically with the question of who is working at different places and claims about discrimination, saying the terms and conditions that you set for a particular job are discriminating against me. The, the, yes, the you're saying that they don't, they don't come under the employment uh, provisions because they're not employees. Not coming under the employment provisions, they're not covered at, at all. Under the Disabilities Act and, and, and not under Title II, whether there are other provisions like Section 1981, for example, in the case of race, might extend protection. Yes, but as far as the public accommodation it, is concerned, question, being consistent. The public accommodations provisions, in our view, are intended, again, to deal with essentially people but who are Mr. consumers, Frank, I, clients and customers. Can I just identify your theory a little better? Are you contending that when the golf course is being used for a PGA tournament, it is not a place of public accommodation? because it's the limited number of people who can play on that day? Or are you contending that even though it's a place of public accommodation, the contestants are not individuals within the meaning of the act? It is a modified version of the second, Justice Stevens. It is that they are not individuals seeking full and equal enjoyment of good services, privileges, accommodations, as those terms should but, are but properly But you, you are assuming that the golf course, even though for a specific purpose, continues to be a place of public accommodation. That, that the area generally, uh, there, there is a difficulty. I mean, one of, one of the questions that one has is, is every piece of, of, the, of the property a place of public accommodation, or is, is the, are the ropes, for example, dividing a place of public accommodation from a place that isn't? That is one way to look at it. In, in our view, the, the, the simpler way to look at it is the second way that you have, which is to say you have to be asking in this question, is the person, an individual, receiving the kinds of good services See, I think you, you conceivably could have taken the position that when it's rented out for a particular purpose, it loses its character as a place of public accommodation because only certain people can use it. You rent a hotel, say, to have a wedding. It, is it then still a place of public accommodation? But you, you're not — questioning that but that's, a place of public that's because they clearly are the tour doesn't deny it's putting on an entertainment it is putting on an entertainment right. to which spectators are, are allowed so if if one asks is is the golf course at this moment a place of exercise or recreation as that's typically thought of under title three our answer would be i think the better view is no and the Ninth Circuit actually, interestingly, didn't say that it was a place of exercise or recreation. It noted that we made the argument it wasn't and basically said, be that as it may, it is a place of entertainment. And, we, and what we're saying is, yes, it is a place of entertainment. And there are people present at the tournaments who, in fact, are enjoying goods and service, enjoying the entertainment that we're providing. But, it seems but the golfers we're, we're, are part of the entertainment. We're, we're talking me. about not something that just a place. We're talking about the tour, the, the circuit, the season whatever it's called. Uh, that's what he wants to participate in. That's correct. And that, it seems to me, is, is, is a public accommodation in that it's open to golfers from all over the world. Well, Justice Kennedy, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, if, if, if the thing that makes the, the tour have the obligation to the spectators is the fact that they are operating a place of public accommodation during the tournaments. You have to be operating a place of public accommodation before you become subject to Title III. Well, I, I assume you could have a place be, of a public accommodation yeah. on the cybernet or something that doesn't exist at any one place. Uh, and and, and that's, what, that's what this other dimension of this case is. They're offering 
to everyone the opportunity to compete in the abstraction we call a tour, a circuit. But Justice Kennedy, the tour isn't an abstraction. I mean, the, the, the tour literally is a, a series of events put on by a 501c6 organization, a non-stock membership organization, and they are put on for the purposes of providing entertainment to the public. That entertainment, it seems to me, is a product that they offer at a place of public accommodation. Mr. Farr, there's another important question you haven't addressed. If we assume, for purposes of of, uh, resolving this case, that it is a place of public accommodation, then there is a second question about what kind of accommodation is required. Are you going to talk about that before your time is up? Yes, sir, Senator. Let let, let me talk about that now, if if I may. If if one assumes for a moment, and, for example, the Seventh Circuit in the Olinger case just assumed that Title III did apply to the type of claim that the professional golfer there made, if one assumes that, then the question is whether the modification that's requested here would fundamentally alter uh, the nature of tour events. And I think that where the Ninth Circuit went wrong on that particular question is that it never really came to grips with what professional athletics are. The professional athletics are, as I said in the beginning, simply tests of excellence. There are questions of who can perform the best, a particular set of physical tasks, and those tasks are defined by the rules of the sport. But, but the PGA has let down its requirements in a couple of cases. One golfer had been injured, and he was allowed to go in a cart, was he not? not never in a high-level tour event, Your Honor. There has never been a situation in the events we're talking about, which is the events on the highest-level PGA tours, where they have allowed Mr. different Farr, that's not to true as to qualifying schools. Oh, qualifying tours. And the thing that puzzles me is how it can be a fundamental rule that applies, that does not apply in the qualifying events. Well, because the, 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 the principal events that they put on are, of course, the events of the tour themselves, the two highest-level events. Qualifying involves simply questions of logistics, to be honest. There are, there are many more people who no, are if, if logistics are sufficient to justify use of a cart, why isn't this handicap sufficient? Well, first of all, let, let me Because they're both a- trying to determine the quality of the golfer, and one — it's not fundamental in qualifying schools, but it is fundamental in the tour event itself. Well, let, let me make one point, that when courts are allowed, they are allowed for all players. So, and that is essentially because there are choices that the tour has to make at any particular time about whether there are enough caddies available, whether there's enough time on the golf course to get however many people there are through the event in order to produce whatever result they're looking for. With respect to the events we're talking about, the actual competitions on the, on the PGA Tour, on the Buy.com Tour, which is the second-level second tour, the tour has always required that all competitors observe all the same rules, including the walking rule. There have been no exceptions to that whatsoever. Mr. Mr. Farr, is, is your position then uh, a clear position that there is no accommodation required in a professional sport competition, that the rules are whatever they are, and 
there is no requirement to adjust to any disability. I want to make clear two points. First of all, when I talk about rules, I am talking about what we have called in the case substantive rules. And that is rules that are intended to and do have the potential to affect performance and the outcome of the tournament. So first of all, when I'm using the term rules, I am. Secondly, though, the question is if you're saying do we mean that for any rule or any accommodation, I think the correct answer is yes. Although one sort of instinctively would think that there should be some process by which people can separate the performance-affecting rules that really count from the performance-affecting rules that don't really count, I actually don't think there is such a process. Well, you're familiar with both the law in the area and the game in your preparation for this for this argument. So, but you you could not think of any concrete example of where there would be any requirement to accommodate to a disability. That the game is the game. In a professional sport, I think that's true. That the, the purpose of a professional sport is one thing and one thing only. It's to determine who is the best at doing a certain set of defined tasks. If you change what the tasks are, if you change the rules that people have to comply with so that you have different rules for different players, you're not going to get an answer to the question of who is the best at that particular thing. But your argument is... Oh, please go ahead. Let me go ahead. Yeah. Am I correct that... Assuming we have these two different grounds, uh, if we go on your first ground and agree with you on that, namely that this is not a, uh, uh, an individual who's seeking to enjoy the, uh, the place of public accommodation, the PGA Tour would nonetheless, if it wished, be uh, able to grant an exception in the future to Casey Martin. It could say, well, we don't have to under Title III but we're going to do it voluntarily. Whereas if we go on your second ground, namely that it is a uh, fundamental part of a sport, the tour wouldn't be able to make such an exception, would it? Well, it, I, I, it would, in effect, be admitting that it is not a fundamental feature of the sport. I, I think our, our second argument is slightly different, Justice Scalia. I agree with the first part, to start with. Yes, I, th I think if, if the Court would agree on the first issue, that the tour could. And I think the tour could under the second, simply by changing what the rules of the sport are. What Our position is not well, that there is no, such they, a thing. Well, they make an exception just for one for one member. But then of course you could change it for everybody. Anybody that wants to ride can ride, but, but could just say only Mr. Martin can ride. But then, they do that if, if, we, if, we, if the basis for their exemption is the fact that walking is fundamental to the sport. I think it's, it's it, again, the, 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 our, our argument, just to make sure I'm being clear, is not that we are contested, contending that there's a difference, that there are fundamental rules and non-fundamental rules. We can tell which one is which, and walking is a fundamental rule. If there were such a way to tell, we think walking would be a fundamental rule. But, but our position, in fact, is that all the substantive rules, rules are, are fundamental rules. rules. And rules therefore, rules. you can't make an exception for one individual. You cannot, right? you and as soon as you do that, then, then... You have to have the uniformity in order to... to you're be only saying walking is fundamental if there is a rule against writing. I'm sorry, Justice. You're only saying walking is fundamental if there is and always has been a rule against writing in a cart. That what is fundamental... Am I right what, about that? I... I Yes, and, and yeah. except, again, I want, to, I want to be clear that what, in fact, is fundamental to any particular game 
is the rules of the sport. That is what defines what the sport is. Therefore, if there is not a rule against it, by definition, it's not something that potentially affects the outcome of the sport as played under its rules. Why, this would, would be true of — Pardon me? This would be true of amateur sports as well as, as the — I think the difference in amateur sports and the thing that makes, makes the fundamental — when you apply the fundamental alteration language is that the fund, when you talk about fundamentally altering the nature of a particular good or service, that requires looking at what the nature of the particular good or service is. The nature of a professional sport is very different, I think, from the nature of most amateur sports, probably not Because all. it's trying to winnow the wheat from the chaff in a way that amateur sports don't. Not only that. I mean, amateur sports do that to some extent as well. But amateur sports, by definition, and, and particularly high school, college, grade school sports, things like that, have as part of their very nature, part of their very reason for being an educational or recreational side. And therefore, when one comes to apply any fundamentally alter language to the nature of that, essentially amateur sports, most amateur sports, have a dual nature. They have a nature that involves sort of sorting winners from losers, but they also have a nature that says we're trying to get as many kids in the high school or whatever to play. Why couldn't you make that same argument? Why couldn't that same argument be made by anyone who provides an important public service? You know, we have a bunch of rules, characteristics, qualifications. We don't want courts in there weighing the importance of this good or service or privilege. Uh, therefore, if it affects the nature of the good service or privilege, it's fundamental, well, which it, is the argument you're making. If it's actually changing what the good or service is. They always do, to some tiny degree. Well, if it changes the nature then, though, I think, one, there, therefore, one has to look at the regulations for some guidance. And the regulations, I'd like to take just a minute before I reserve my time, if I may. But the regulations are something that, because the United States hasn't cited them, I think maybe get lost a little bit here. But under the regulations in Title III, There's a specific provision that says a public accommodation does not have to change its inventory to accommodate disabled people. And the reason given for that in the preamble of the regulations is that Title III requirements are intended to assure access to the goods and services being provided, not to alter the mix and nature of the services typically provided. Now, typically provided in this context, we would say, are the tournaments with uniform rules, including the walking rule. At the very highest level, that is what's been typically provided. And the reason I think for that, and I think this goes to your question, Justice Breyer, is that in a sense, any store or commercial entity is just whatever its goods are. A bookstore, an example is a bookstore does not have to stock braille, braille books. And there isn't an inquiry every time as to how much trouble it would be to stock Braille books, whether there's shelf space, whether they could get them or not. There's a categorical rule in the regulations that says that's not what we're talking about. That would be a fundamental alteration. And that's exactly the same point we're making here. If I may, I'd like to reserve Thank you, Mr. Farr. We reserve your time. Uh, we'll hear from you now, Mr. Reardon. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and and may it please the Court. I would like to take the liberty of beginning with Petitioner's second point, because I think it's uh, something we've recently heard discussed here, and it's, I think, quite important. From 1965 until 1997, the PGA ran a Q school to determine what school? It's a, it's a Q, they call it the Q school. It's a qualifying school, mm. Your Honor. 
And, and the purpose of that Q school is to determine, it's a test of excellence, as Petitioner said, to determine who is the best and who can go on the tour the following year. It's a very intense uh, course. There are 14 sessions, 252 holes, played on courses just like the PGA's regular courses that they play their tournaments on. The hard card, which is described in the briefs as the rules which impact tennis tournaments, uh, golf tournaments under the PGA, the hard card applies to those events. But the walking provision of the hard card is eliminated for purposes of the Q school. And what happens is there's a winnowing down process. In 1997, when Casey tried out, there were something like 1,200 people, golfers from the public, who wanted to play on the PGA Tour. And they came in, paid their money, had their references, and started to play. And they winnow it down to 168 players by the third stage. Every one of those 168 players is going to either go on the PGA Tour the next year or on the Nike Tour at the time. And none of those players need ever have walked a single hole, not only in the qualifying, but in their lives. Mr. Redden, all that, all that proves is that you could play golf under different rules, just as you can play baseball under different rules. Is the, is the designated hitter rule, is it essential to the game of baseball that the pitcher bat? There, there are two leagues. One league has it, one league does They play under different rules, when but you, every team in each league has to play under, uh, under the same rule. Now, could, could a pitcher in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in the National League, which follows the traditional rule, could he say, I have some blood deficiency that means I get tired uh, sooner than other pitchers, and therefore I shouldn't have to go up to bat. I, I, I'd like to sit in the dugout. Because, after all, the, uh, the rule that the pitcher has to bat is not fundamental to baseball. Look at the, the American League uh, doesn't have that rule. Well, for the National League, it is fundamental, and it would not be permissible, because you would be changing. Why? The simply, day, you're changing. Simply because that's what they do. That's, that's the rule of the game. But, but Your Honor, I, I, cite, I, I, I cite what happens in the Q School to demonstrate the fact that walking is not indeed fundamental. All that, it they demonstrates, don't it. all that it demonstrates is that you can play the game under a different rule. I mean, what I don't understand the, the whole meaning of fundamentalness with regard to a sport. Is it fundamental to baseball that the, that the strike zone be from the chest to the knees? It could be from the eyes to the hips, couldn't it? Would it that could. make any difference? Rules could be changed. And, and could, could a player who has a disability, which means he has which causes him to have an excessively long torso, could, could, could he demand that the umpire call strikes on him from, uh, uh, you know, from his eyes to his hips? No, he could not, Your Honor. Of course he could. Because they're fundamental. It's a silly fundamental rule. All, all sports rules are silly rules, aren't they? I don't think it's a silly rule. I think it, it, it gauges how well the pitcher can control the, bore, the, the ball and get it within the strike zone. Here we're dealing with something that isn't fundamental. Now, not only in the Q school, any Monday, a golfer with a two handicap and two letters in refer of reference can go out to a PGA tournament that's about to be run that week. 
and they show up and they present their handicap in their letters of reference. Well, Mr. Reardon, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, in a strikingly similar case to this one, determined at the end of the day that the walking rule uh, was fundamental because it put additional physical stress on each competitor after a tournament lasting several days and perhaps in hotter and clement weather and on hilly conditions, it could impose quite an additional stress on the players in the final rounds. That's correct. And therefore, that it was an aspect of the physical challenge involved. That, that, That case is in this court. That case was decided on a different record from this record. That case, I don't think, went into a very material aspect of the proof in our case, which was the nature of the disability, this tragic disability that he has, and what it did in terms of whether or not a a rule which would require him to walk should be altered. Should the nature of the disability make a difference? Basically, because if if it doesn't, then you're not really gauging the second part, which is to consider whether or not an alteration is going to do something fundamentally. If, if it's a superficial disability, giving a player an advantage may indeed result in an alteration in that circumstance. Well, what would be your example of a superficial disability? You in, use the- ingrown toenail, Your Honor. Well, I think if you have an ingrown toenail, it doesn't seem superficial. <laughs> I agree with that. But, but the act, the I act. It's quite internal, actually. The, <laughs> the act does not accommodate that kind of a disability. So Casey Martin's disability is indeed accommodated. Mr. Olinger, you, Mr. Reardon, you said Mr. Olinger's case was different because it was on a different record. And that's somewhat worrisome because let's say you're right that they, they do have to make accommodations. Who is the judge of whether a person is sufficiently disabled to get a dispensation from the non-fundamental walking requirement? Is it up to the lawyers and the quality of the record they make? I think it's initially up to the public accommodation, in this case the PGA, to to look at it and decide. But you said it's the difference between this case and the Olinger case is the record, and that's made in court by advocates for a side. Yes, it is, but I'm talking about in advance of it getting to the courthouse. If the PGA had done what I respectfully suggest the law demands of it, which was to take a look at the nature of the disability, the individual disability of Casey Martin, rather than returning his medical records without looking at them and returning the tape demonstrating the gravity of his problem, they would have seen the disability. And in those circumstances... But did they do it on a case-by-case basis? They do it on and a they case. say, we're, we're troubled by this notion because we think there are a lot of people who will say it's a lot harder for us to walk. And we don't, we, we won't know where to draw the line. Respectfully, uh, Justice Ginsburg, I don't believe there will be a lot of cases, a lot of people, because just taking our 1997 case, the PGA has not had another lawsuit by a disabled person. The USGA, which is here, has had two lawsuits, uh, basically similar facts. Now, 
there has not been a huge wave of litigation. And the reason is, a person like Casey Martin is very unique. He never asked for any modification of any rule affecting where he hits the ball, how big the hole is, or anything else. He plays every single rule of the game. The only thing is his disability, and the whole purpose of the act is to get people like Casey Martin a chance to get to the game. What, what is the rule? Didn't organized baseball uh, waive a rule in the case of Jim Abbott, who had, uh, uh, I think, a, a hand? Uh, what was the rule they, they waived? Do you remember? As I, as I understand the rule, Your Honor, yeah. uh, basically in baseball, the pitcher is not supposed to move the ball in his hand prior to delivery. And they waive that rule. And he can take regular pitches, take the ball, as you see, they take it into their chest, hold the ball behind the glove, and then make the delivery. Now, how, how are we supposed to find out whether this rule is more like that rule of looking at the ball in baseball or whether it's more like the rule that Justice Scalia mentioned, namely the rule of having a designated hitter? How, is the, how are we supposed to decide whether the rule is the one or the other? Okay. I, I think what's very important is to understand what the game is. What is the competition? Now, when you look at the rules of golf promulgated by the U.S. Golf Association and St. Andrews, this is the Bible of golf. If you want to play golf virtually in the world, you play by these rules. What do these rules say? Rule one of the game of golf. Hitting the ball from the teeing ground into the hole by a stroke or successive strokes. That's the game. There's no rule in the rules of golf. No, but you realize I'm not the one who will know that. I, I'm not very good at golf. The, 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 the real question is, some rules are like the designated hitter, and they're part of the game. Other rules are like whether you look at the baseball before you throw it or hold it to your chest, which isn't part of the game, at least not an essential part. Now, how do we find out which is which? Because the question was raised, and I want to be clear what the answer to that is. And how do we find out? Not we, me personally. What's the system for finding out? I would respectfully suggest the system is to look at the nature of the rule. Who? Initially, it would be the public accommodation. If they don't agree that there should be a waiver of the rule, then it has to go on up the line, including to courts, if that's required. So courts look at that like they look at any other rule of any other employer, public accommodation, etc. Yes, I, I, I don't see anything quite frank, frankly, respectfully, that, that's Mr. extraordinary about it. Well, we get into a lot of unexpected areas around here. Uh, but uh, at, the, at, at, at the least, don't we have to give substantial deference to the sporting authority? Actually, uh, Justice Kennedy, if you wind up giving substantial deference, in other words, if you roll over and let them make a rule and say it's substantive, and, and that's the end of the game, then you've basically given them a free pass out of the Americans with Disabilities Act which would be improper. Well, you have to make We an give deference to agencies all the time. It's not rolling over. It's just an acknowledgment of who has the best expertise, who, who knows the most about it, who is best equipped to, to make the decision. That's all it is. But it, it's not just a decision by the sport. There's an implication and a very significant implication in the statute which requires the analysis. This is not something where Congress said, 
uh, sports Mr. have Reardon, an can I ask you a question? Be sure I'll understand your theory about fundamentally alter the nature of the game. Are you contending that the uh, walking rule is never a fundamental? Uh, abandoning the walking rule would never it would never be a fundamental rule. Or are you contending that with respect to Casey Martin? It's not fundamental because his disability has the same impact on his ability to play as walking has on other people. Which is your theory? I, I, I would, I'm trying to live with both theories, if you're on a please. But I, I do believe that, that looking at, at his disability is very important because it enables the one making the judgment to determine whether or not this modification, taking into account his circumstances, is really significant. Mr. Reardon, let me, lest we seem as ignorant of the rules of baseball as we may well be of the rules of golf, and the former would be a much greater sin, I, I want to Wait point... Wait a minute. <laughs> In dissent again. <laughs> I, I want to point out that, that your, 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 uh, your colleague uh, uh, does not agree that uh, a special uh, exception was made for Jim Abbott, uh, that they, they believe that the rules of baseball did not prohibit what he was doing. I, I, the only I, thing that was prohibited was deceiving the base runner and, uh, and uh, spinning the ball. So long as it didn't deceive the base runner, it was okay. I don't, we don't have to resolve that. I saw his, I, I but saw I just want to be on the record that we're aware of that problem. Uh, I don't know if I've answered your question, Justice Stevens, but I, I think it, it largely turns, initially at least, on the condition of the disabled person. And you look at that. Well, well then you're not contending that the, uh, if, if it weren't for the particular nature of his disability, that it would fu fundamentally alter the game. No, Your, your Honor, I, I think if you examine the way the PGA has handled the whole walking rule, it's replete with exceptions, that you can't have all of those exceptions and then argue it's essential, because that's what the — you get to the definition. Well, it seems to me you can have a different rule for qualifying and then have — than you have for the final events. And if the final events are all uh, — uh, run consistently with the general rule. I'm not sure the, the the fact that it isn't fundamental in the sense you don't really have to have it makes a difference. But, but if, you're, if you're testing the same skills, that's very important to my argument, that what are you testing? And when you look at the way they've handled the exemptions throughout, this is the over-50s, just last week in Hawaii, and this is not in the brief, but examples like this are in the brief. There are a couple of holes out in Hawaii on the Mercedes Championship that were difficult for the players to negotiate because they were hilly. They took them by cars. Yeah, but they took them by cars, I take it, for everybody. Everybody. And, and, and therefore, the fact that they took them by cars does not affect the assessment of the relative abilities of the players because they all got the same dispensation. Your brother's argument is that, that a professional sport is entitled to define anything as fundamental which could affect the relative, the measurement or the indication of the relative ability of the players. Uh, and he says walking or not walking does make that kind of a difference. What is wrong? And we've got to come up with some kind of a standard if, uh, no matter how we decide this case, why isn't that a reasonable standard that should be respected under the Act? 
because walking is not the game. The game is hitting the ball. And no, shot. but the, the the game can be. The, the, we're not talking about the game in the abstract. We're talking about the PGA Tour. And if the people who make the rules for the PGA Tour say we want to make this particular game tougher than regular golf games. We're going to separate another subset of people by making them walk, uh, or at least making them walk on most holes. Everybody has to play by this rule. Why, if that could be outcome determinative, uh, is that not a, number one, a reasonable way for them to draw the line, and why shouldn't we respect it? I, I think it, you ha still have to look at the rule to see whether that rule, as imposed, or as modified, given an exception, would fundamentally alter. I that know it, aim. but their argument is that that's. But you're 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 avoiding my question. I'm sorry. There are, I think, their argument is that if it can affect the results, then we are entitled to define it as fundamental in this kind of a game. Uh, you may argue that it doesn't affect the results, and therefore, even on their own theory it shouldn't apply. And you have so argued, and I understand that. But if you're not right about that, is there something wrong with the legal criterion that they are arguing for? Your Honor, what I think is wrong with it is that you would basically be giving the PGA and organized sports a free pass out from under the... I, I understand your argument, but their response to that, I think, would be, no, it's not a free pass, because if you can, in fact, show that this doesn't affect the, the relative measurement of the players, that this is just kind of a sham, uh, then, then we couldn't enforce it. It wouldn't be fundamental within the, the meaning. And, and I, I, we haven't proposed the rule as a sham, but we have and rely upon the record which reflects the trial judge's conclusion after a six-day trial that walking was not a significant matter. Under normal circumstances. Under normal circumstances. And that's an ambiguity in, in the lower court's finding. What is — isn't a tournament and at the height of the competition abnormal circumstance with the description of the — of the what, — what would it be, the, the, the extra hole and the humidity and the rough terrain? That, that doesn't sound to me like normal circumstances. What, what was — what was the, the lower court intending to cover with that qualifying language? I, I can only suggest, and there was testimony with respect to the U.S. Open, which was held here in Washington in 1964, testi testimony by the player who won it, uh, Mr. Venturi. Uh, and his testimony was that he literally did get exhausted. There was counter-testimony that said the exhaustion came from dehydration, not from walking. And there were spectators at that event who were passing out. But they weren't what, doing what any walking. Abnormal. What, are, what is a normal circumstance and what is an abnormal circumstance? I, I, I think uh, the abnormal circumstance would probably be a circumstance that may, may have some relationship to performance, but may not. Thank you, Mr. Reardon. Ms. Underwood, we'll hear from you.
Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, this case presents an important question of the coverage of the Disabilities Act, as well as an issue of its application. Uh, when an organization arranges a golf tournament and invites the public to compete for the opportunity to participate, it provides golfers with services, privileges, and advantages of a golf Mr. course. Underwood, may I just ask you a question right there? Uh, putting the qualifying schools to one side for a moment, at the time they have entries to the golf tournament itself, the public can't just, anybody just can't come in and say, I want to play. Only those people who have graduated from the qualifying school. Well, that's rather like the fact that um, uh, a university that, uh, to, that, that offers, uh, app, that, to which the public can apply, um, doesn't then admit the whole public. It has a selection process, and so only, only the admitted people can attend, but the university is a public accommodation. The students are not performing. The professors are performing, and the students, uh, the, the, the students are enjoying the performance of the professors. Yes, that, that's, that's a different point. All I meant was that the fact that there is a selection process does not deprive an entity of its status as a public accommodation. If it's open to the public to uh, compete, to attend, then that whole process is, an, is something that's open, to which the public is invited. On the separate point, what are the why, why is that any different with respect to employees? Couldn't you say that all of your employees are enjoying the opportunity to work for you in the place of public accommodation in which you employ them? That well, seems to me perfectly parallel to saying that these professional golfers who are making money by, uh, by putting on this entertainment are enjoying the opportunity to do that. Well, you might be able to say that there are two re — the words would allow you to say that. There are two reasons why you wouldn't. One is that Congress made very clear that it was covering employees in Title I and that it didn't intend to provide redundant coverage in Title III. So whatever one might say ab initio, that possibility is excluded. And in contractors would be covered then. Well, independent contractors who, uh, who provide uh, services to the uh, owner of the public accommodation are enjoying the opportunity to provide him uh, services. Well, I'd like to take the, answer that in two steps because I take issue with the uh, proposition that these are employee-like independent contractors. I do say that even if they were, they would be covered. But this is a much stronger case because, in fact, um, uh, there is no independent contracting relationship here. The golfer does not un does not undertake any obligation to uh, perform, even in the way that an independent contractor was does. He is doesn't he have to doesn't he have to appear in a certain number of tournaments per year? I thought that was part of the commitment. He doesn't make a commitment to. As my understanding of the record, that he doesn't make a commitment. It is true that if he doesn't appear, he won't be in the tour anymore. But he, by qualifying and, and uh, being eligible to be in the tour, does not make a, a commitment to. Well, to that's just just like saying that an independent contractor doesn't have to comply with his contract. The only thing is, if he doesn't, he gets fired. Uh, no, it's, it's not quite same. the same thing because there's there's no contract there's no contractual commitment here at at, at all. In you're fact, saying they can't. I take it you're saying that they can't sue the, the tour can't sue the guy who doesn't play enough games. That's they just drop him, whereas they can sue the plumber who doesn't come to 
if you have to hire a more expensive plumber. That's, that's correct. Um, in fact, PGA Tour explained in the district court when they were attempting to defeat the claim that this was an employee, that it doesn't hire golfers, that it's a membership organization, a professional association that arranges playing opportunities for its members and promotes their interests. It compared itself to the ABA in that regard. Um, it provides opportunities for them. It provides services May I, may I ask you, Ms. Underwood, if whether uh, to decide in your favor we have to determine the general applicability of Title III of the ADA to independent contractors? No, you do not. Um, in this, uh, that is the, the, um, uh, the particular sort of entity or uh, status of uh, respondent here is, as I said, uh, a much clearer case that he is a consumer of the services or the uh, privileges or advantages of a public accommodation. It was determined in this case, as I understood it, that he was an independent contractor. At least the district court thought so. Well, the district court said so in the context of deciding that he wasn't an employee, as if the only two options were that he was an employee or an independent contractor. That is, in deciding that he couldn't take advantage of Title I, for employees, the court said he's not an employee and looked to the body of law that said people who aren't employees are independent contractors. But I don't think that resolves the question whether he may be with something else entirely, a member or a potential member who was neither uh, an employee nor an independent contractor, as that term is commonly used in, in, the, in the working context. He simply wasn't a worker here at all. Uh, Petitioner argues that players can't be consumers of services because they are providers of entertainment to the spectators, but that is simply a false dichotomy. PGA offers services to these two different groups. It arranges playing opportunities for golfers and viewing opportunities for the spectators. As a result, players both consume and provide services at the same time, just like the Little League players who have uniformly been treated by the lower courts as protected users of a public accommodation, well, even I, I, I suppose any business of which is a successful business in the community holds out the privilege of independent contracting as repairmen come in and so forth. They're all independent contractors. And I, I'm, I'm not <laughs> quite sure how you distinguish that from, from the, the golfers here. Well, the difference is that, I mean, as I say, I think there's an argument that even those independent contractors could be covered, that the Disability Act meant to open economic and social life to people with disabilities and that... Let, let's, let's assume let's, I disagree with that. Yes. I, I think this, the, the simple answer here is that the privilege of working for, for money um, in, in an employee-like role is simply quite different from what is happening when somebody participates in a competition. Um, the public accommodations laws, as, as was said earlier, protect gamblers at a casino or exhibitors at a craft fair or participants in a dance contest, whether there are money prizes or not, whether the people who are engaging in those competitions, I mean, I think the comp the, uh, are doing it to make their living or are doing it as an avocation. It wouldn't work to distinguish the motivations of the different users of the services of that uh, accommodation. They wouldn't be protected if they were employees. It's perfectly true that if golf arranged itself differently, um, and had employees here, they wouldn't be protected under Title III. But III. the independent contractor repairman has to do it for a, a living, and let's, let's assume that we think that that's what these golfers are doing. What's the difference? 
The difference is that the participation in a contest is a different sort of act that is open to the public, is a different sort of thing from the uh, uh, cut from the arrangement by contract, by employment contract, or by some other contract to provide services. Um, and I'd like to point out, of course, that covering people like independent contractors or like contest participants, which is what we have here, under Title III is not, as has been suggested, some sort of end run around the limitations of Title I. Are you then distinguishing the, the stage? One, one analogy that was made is the spectators are in the theater, but what's going on in the stage, those people are not relating to the space as a public accommodation. Well, um, you're making a comparison to the theater, you mean? Yes. Well, in a theater, of course, ordinarily there are employees, so this issue, they ordinarily are employees, so this issue doesn't come up. I would suppose, though, that if, um, if, a, if, a, uh, if a performer sought to rent a performance space, he would be a consumer of the um, of, the, of that facility and could claim that he was being discriminated against in, as a consumer of, of that facility. Uh, that's not usually the way poor performers relate to performance space. In your opinion, if, does it make a difference if, uh, if there's no easy classification, that is, if a professional golfer is somehow unique, not a duck, not, a, not, not, not this, not some other thing, not an employee, not a contractor, not a client, not exactly a customer, not a this, not a that? Does it matter? Well, I think that the purpose of the Disabilities Act was to, was to be inclusive. I think that's clear both from the statute and from the legislative history, so that I would suggest that if there's — that doubts should be resolved here in favor of coverage. But, uh, but, but I don't think it's unclear. I think that um, — that the, that, that the public accommodations title was meant to cover uh, a, a golf courses and participation in events at golf courses so long as they are open to the public. And it seems to me this is right in the, in the heart of what the statute was meant to reach. Thank you, Ms. Underwood. Mr. Farr, you have three minutes remaining. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just <clears throat> a few brief points. Um, responding in reverse order to, to the United States argument. Um, first of all, they say that the reason that employers, employees are not covered by Title III is because that covers Title I. But Title I doesn't cover all employees. It only covers employees of a covered employer. You have to have at least 15 employees to be covered. And if you're not an employee of a covered employer, you're not, a, you're not covered either. Yet the United States position is that no employees are covered by Title III. But really, independent contractors or people similar to that are in the same position, essentially, with respect to Title III as non-covered employees under Title I. Secondly, the district court specifically said that uh, respondent was an independent contractor, not just in talking about Title I, but on page 53 of the joint appendix, it says, the district court says, I focus only on the issue of whether he is entitled to his requested accommodation, the use of a golf cart, as an independent contractor playing in defendant's tournaments, which are held at places of public accommodation. Now, but I should point out, I mean, while he is an independent contractor as defined by the district court, our point is not exactly turns on whether he's an employer or an independent contractor. Our point is he is not a consumer of goods and services. And there are a number of people who are not consumers. Employees are in the group. 
independent contractors are in the group. Partners in a law firm, which is a type of public accommodation, are not in the group. Insurance agents are not in the group. The, the issue is what they're not. They're not people provide, uh, obtaining, seeking to obtain or gain access to goods and services. They're all in the category of people who are providing goods and services to the public accommodation so it, in turn, can provide its and goods and services to other people. Secondly, just to make the contrast between the people who are also playing golf and who are covered, Title III, we concede, it covers commercial opportunities, recreational opportunities, educational opportunities. Those are all things specifically mentioned in Title III in terms of defining who's a public accommodation. What it doesn't cover is professional opportunities, the people who are trying to get to make their living essentially working for the place, the operator of the public accommodation. So they're not like the tout at the racetrack who's there in common with the other people enjoying it for recreation. They are people actually working like somebody who's behind the betting counter at the racetrack who is working for the operator. Now, just quickly on the points that respondent raises, Rule 1.1 doesn't say golf is a sport of hitting the ball from the tee to the the, uh, putting uh, hole. It says it's it's a game of of hitting it from the tee to the putting hole in accordance with the rules. That is Rule 1.1. And the rules for this particular competition include, as they're permitted to be, optional rules, and that in, in turn includes the requirement that competitors walk the course. So if you, if you are saying that you cannot have, that, that you have to make waivers in that situation for someone who can't comply, Thank you, Mr. Farr. The, the case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.